Sojourn is a church that exists to make disciples. We do that through evangelizing the lost. We do that through equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Both of those are activities that have to be centered around the Word of God. So each week we turn to the Word of God. We've been working through the book of Genesis. First book in your Bible. If you have the Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 9. We'll be finishing up Genesis chapter 9 this morning. And as we turn to the Word of the Lord, let's, let's go to Him in prayer and ask that He would illumine the text to us and, and speak to us clearly this morning. Father, thank You for Your Word and for speaking to us. What a grace it is that we have Your Word in front of us. God, would You use it to speak to us? And not just to transfer some information, but may we really get to know You. And may we respond to You rightly from what you have spoken to us in your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, many of you uh, might have grown up with one of these systems that we call a Nintendo. The original Nintendo, pictured here, the NES, kind of the classic version. This is kind of where it all got started. This was the, the kind of the, the big thing when, when a lot of you were growing up. When I was growing up, I, I, my, my grandpa, he was super cool, so he had an Atari that we got to play on. But we moved from Atari to Nintendo, and Nintendo was like a whole different world. It was great. So we played Mario, we played all these different things on the Nintendo. Now you, if you've used one of these, know what this is like. Sometimes when you put the little game in, it doesn't work. You just get a blurred screen. So do you remember what you did if the game didn't work when you stuck it in? Right, you would pop that sucker out, and you'd blow on it. Like, I don't know why that was the thing. I don't know if Nintendo suggested, like, get all your slobber in there, and then somehow it's going to work. But everybody did. It was like this universal response, universal answer to, like, if the Nintendo game doesn't work, go ahead, pop that sucker out, blow on it, and stick it back in and see if it works. And so, like, it was like, we're, we're starting again, we're starting afresh after this clean, like, blowing on it to, to get the game to, to work correctly. Now, there could be this, this question of, of this world and of humanity, like, what would happen if, if we kind of did that? If we, we stuck the cartridge in there, it didn't work, right? All right? We had the fall, we had all sorts of breakdowns, demons were coming in, they were messing around with the daughters of men, it was a weird place, and so let's just pop that thing out of there, let's blow on it a little bit, stick it back in and see if it doesn't work right, right? That could be a question, what happens if we just started again? Could we get this thing to work correctly if we just started again the second time? And what we've been looking at in the book of Genesis is if that's kind of what has happened, that, that Things went really, really badly, and, and God brought this, this flood of judgment to cleanse the earth of sin. And so now we get to see, after the flood, well, is it going to work right this time? Is it going to, to work the best way? And, and here we have this story at the end of Genesis chapter 9. This story that is going to feature drinking, nakedness, maybe more, cursing. It's like this, this amazing daytime TV show with all sorts of drama. Right? And this story reminds us that, that if we were to just start all over again, let's just scratch it and let's keep a, a, a one person or one family alive and let's just keep them going and see if it'll, it'll reboot and work right this time, it shows us that it won't. And it reminds us that we need something greater than a flood. Something more lasting and more uh, impactful than a rainbow. We need someone who's better than Noah. Someone greater than Noah. See, what humanity needs isn't just a flood. Or just a reminder of the grace. We need redemption. We need to be saved. We need a new Adam. A better Adam. 
And so this, this flood that was powerful, and a, a powerful display of the judgment of God upon sin, wasn't the answer. God never intended it for it to be the answer. And Noah, who's kind of pictured as this second Adam, this new humanity in the cleansed creation, Noah wasn't the answer either. And because he wasn't the answer, he points us onward to someone who is greater than him. See, Noah was listed as righteous, but he wasn't perfect. And the text is building from Genesis chapter 1 on, building us this anticipation that one would come who is greater than than Adam, that's greater than Noah, that's greater than David and Solomon, and it's building all along the way until we get to one whose name is Jesus. In Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 18, the the text is getting ready to shift. This is the last kind of scene of Noah's life. The the text is going to shift from Noah to the end of his descendants and on down through Genesis. And so we look in in verse 18 and 19 of of chapter 9, it says that the sons of Noah went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now Ham was the father of Canaan, and these three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of, of the whole earth were dispersed. And so God told Noah and his offspring when they got off the ark to be fruitful and multiply. He blessed them and told them to do this. And God's blessing upon Noah and his sons, it works. Right? It's a reminder of the, the effectiveness of the Word of God. In, in Genesis chapter 1, He speaks and universes come into existence. In Genesis chapter 8 and 9, He blesses Noah and his family and nations come into existence. Right? They, they're all dispersed uh, through the, the blessing from His Word through these children of Noah. But before Noah kind of goes goes offset completely. There's one more act uh, that is recorded about his life. And we read about that in verse 20. That Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. This once again further connects Noah with Adam, who was a, a, a man of the ground, right? His name was Adam, which was very close to the word for soil, ground. And so Adam and the ground were closely tied together. And Noah, he's becoming a, a man of the soil as well. So it's closely tying him to the soil, tying him again, picturing him as this kind of new Adam. And what is he doing? He's, he's planting and, and using a vineyard. So he's holding dominion over the earth as Adam was commanded to do as well. But like Adam, Noah fails to rightly hold dominion. And he falls. Verse 21 says that he drank of the wine and became drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. Drunk and naked. This is where we find Noah at this point. Uh, he is drunk and naked. And this is probably not the story that you heard growing up in, in your uh, VBS classes about Noah. That, that Noah, he was like, yeah, he was fun. He got on the ark, he had these cute animals. And then afterwards he got drunk and naked. This is not a good picture. Right? This is an, another episode, like Adam, where he, was, he is failing to rightly hold dominion. It's another episode of, of there being sin that's entered and this problem of nakedness that God is going to address like He did with Adam. Now, the, the Scripture doesn't give us any sort of, of comment on his motives. We, we don't know if Noah knew that he would get drunk. We don't know if he, he premeditated this. We don't know what was going on there. But I think that one commentator says it right when he says this. The reality is that Noah was not ignorant. He was over 600 years old, and this event was sometime after the flood, because it takes years for a vineyard to produce. Not to mention that he now had numerous grandsons, because Ham's son Canaan was the youngest of four. So he was a seasoned man of the soil, and he knew what wine could do. As we read through 20 and 21, are you surprised with this scene? And Noah, you just got off the ark. 
You've seen so much from God. You were faithful to God. You you heard Him pronounce that a, a, a flood is coming. Judgment is coming. Build a boat. And you were faithful to do those things and obey the Lord. You saw the rain. You, you heard the, the downpour and the waters washing around you as you were being carried up in this ark with all these animals. You saw all of this thing. And then God made the water disappear. You were reminded. Uh, God remembered you that He was faithful to His promises to save you. You got off the ark. And what did you do? You sacrificed some of these animals. You, you worshipped. God. You've seen all this. Then God gave you a rainbow to remind you, to remind Him that He's not going to do this again. He's seen all of this and we could go on and on and on. In Hebrews 11 we see Noah's listed as one of the faithful. And then we read this story where Noah's drunk and naked after years of life. Are we surprised by this? I don't think that we should be. Because Noah is a man who is under the fall. That is to say that Noah has this sinful nature, that the, the evil intentions that God talked about in, in, Roma, in Genesis 8.21 are the evil intentions that Noah has as well. See, this is not Noah's first sin. We don't see other sins listed out in the Scripture, but I'm guessing that day 30 on the ark might have been a day that Noah got a little grumpy. Or 31. I mean... Somewhere in the range of 0 to 40 of rain pouring down, Noah's probably getting a little grumpy. Like the kids probably aren't feeding the animals like they're supposed to. Wife might be nagging a little bit. And Noah has a sinful, broken heart. My guess is that he has already sinned many times leading up into this point. And the reality is, is that sin is really powerful. That it's deep. That it's pervasive. That it's deceptive. And it's more than we know. So much so that the psalmist can say this in Psalm 19, 12. Who can discern his errors? This is if there's humanity has a very real aspect that we don't even know how bad we are. Psalm chapter 90, verse 8 says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Those are sins that we don't even know that we're committing. But we're so tainted by sin. That there's these secret sins before the Lord. And Jeremiah 17.9 says this about our heart rightly. That the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the implied answer is that even sinful, fallen, broken humanity can't even understand their own sinfulness. It's, it's worse than they think. It's worse than we know. And so this condition that we say is fallen is a worse condition than we even realize and we know. And so what we do is we often underestimate sin. And we don't understand the the nature of sin and how pervasive it is in our own lives. So some of you, when I read through Noah being drunk and naked, you could identify it in some ways. Like, maybe you have your own drunk and naked story. I I don't know. But but, but some of you have have been drunk. You say, oh good, I'm glad there's a, a, a person in the Bible that's fallen like I have fallen. And you might find comfort from that. Or some of you might find comfort in the fact that there's a person in the Bible and he's gotten drunk and naked and I've never done that. So we kind of have an older brother, younger brother going on here, parable of the prodigal son, if you're with me. So we find comfort maybe on one side or the other and the reality is that comfort with sin in any way is a clear way of knowing that we underestimate it. It's a a way of thinking that says, "This, this can't kill me. That I won't surely die. And we hear this hissing in our ears as we repeat those kinds of words. 
fallen and sinful is a worse condition than we think. And the trouble with this story here with Noah is that he's not alone here. That we too are in the same condition as Noah. We too are fallen and inclined toward evil, inclined toward sin. So much so that the Bible says that if you are not in Christ, then you are a slave to your sin. That you do what you most want, and what you most want is to sin. But if you're in Christ, we know that the the power of sin has been broken. We're no longer slaves. That the the penalty of sin is gone because of the work of Christ. But we know that the presence of sin remains. That is, it's not completely gone from our lives. And so often what happens is that we are unaware of, we are blind to, we underestimate our own sin. It's more pervasive and worse than we know. And we, like Noah, can quickly turn from seeing so many great things from the Lord, His great judgment, His great mercy, and still quickly run toward our sin. We are, as we sing, prone to wonder. Oh, how we should feel it. Think about Noah here. In this scene, he, he's just in his tent. He's not at work. He's not out in public. He just plants some grapes, lets them ferment, however that process goes, goes in his tent and gets drunk. In other words, he, he'd kind of been at a place where he could drop his guard. And he goes in a sinful direction. And, and then that, think about this in our lives. If, if the walls of, of our tents... If our homes could talk, what what sins would they speak of? What do we look like when our guard is down? And he seemed like he was maybe just by himself. Maybe no one else was around. And he thought maybe this is the time he's dropping his guard and he falls into sin. What are we like when that happens? Maybe that's just when you're alone. What What do you like when you're just by yourself? When you don't have to put on any sort of show. You're not trying to impress anybody. You're not trying to be something. And sometimes when we're out and about, we're around people, we're at work, we're, we have our guard on. Like we're, we're trying to make sure we don't fall in certain ways. But what do we do when we're alone? Or, or what do you do when it's just your kids? And you've been pushed to the end. And you, you get to a place with kids. If you have kids, you know that you cannot always have your guard up. Or your spouse... What do we like then? And the true answer to that will just show us a piece of who we really are and how sad our state by nature is. In this newly cleansed creation, this new Adam Noah falls, reminding us that humanity needs a better Adam. Someone greater than Noah and something greater than a flood and an ark and a rainbow. Something to cleanse and to cure sinful hearts. And in the Old Testament, there are all these prophets that spoke of such a thing. They spoke of a time when we'd be given new hearts. They spoke of a time when someone greater would come and that we'd be cleansed from our sins. And Hebrews 10 says this. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His own flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with what? A true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
That time that was spoken of, that was promised to us by the prophets, that was even portrayed as something we we need something greater here in Genesis, was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That His blood cleanses us from sin. That we can draw near to the throne of God now based on what He has done and His cleansing work in our lives. A new Adam came and he didn't fall. It faced temptation. He faced temptation and yet ruled over it. And through His body and His blood, we can truly be cleansed. And so we sing, Let the water and the blood from Thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. If we underestimate the depth of our sin and how pervasive and horrendous it is in our lives, then we will most definitely underestimate and undervalue the cure. A cleansing cure. But if we don't see our sin as that bad, then we don't see our Savior as that good. We shouldn't be surprised with with Noah's sin here, with the presence and the power of sin in Noah's lives. And we shouldn't be surprised at it in our lives either. But we should be surprised and astonished and amazed afresh and anew at how God came to cure it. We're just past the flood and humanity already dives back into sinful activity. This is probably not your normal Noah story where he's drunk and naked already. Two verses into his last story in the Scripture. But part of the reason that this story is there is to, to show us that we need something greater. And it's moving us along in the story to, to pass it along to Noah's sons. If you look in verse 22... Not a great picture either. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside, his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall shall he be to his brothers." So Ham commits some sin here. He's definitely guilty of some sort of voyeurism. That is, he is secretly spying and, and, and getting some sort of delight in his father's nakedness. So what Ham does here is dishonors his father. He dishonors his dad Noah by what he has done. And he increases this dishonor not just by seeing it, by also proclaiming it to his brothers. He goes out and he publicly says what has happened to Noah. Now, no doubt that this is inappropriate behavior for a son to a father. But if you were to read through this so far in this passage, this specific couple verses seems a little bit tame, right? Okay, he saw something and he tells his brother. Like, that doesn't sound horribly wicked to us. This could be nothing more than maybe just an awkward dad moment. Right? We've all had those to some degree if you're a dad. Hopefully not to this degree. Maybe you have. The other day, Reed was uh, on my lap and we were, you know, he always wants to wrestle and hit me and slap me. And he, he, he started squeezing my arm and he says, I like this squishy thing. What are you talking about, squishy thing? Are you mean my rock-solid biceps that are humongous? Is that what you're talking about? Like, like he's two years old and he's already out of me. He's like, he's not that strong. He's kind of a wimp. Squishy arms. 
But beyond like an embarrassing dad moment for Noah and Ham here, what's the problem? What seems to be the big deal? Like what's what's such a big deal about what is happening here? Is this really that big of a deal? So much that Noah has to go as far as cursing him and his grandkid. Right? Is, is that such a big deal? Well, maybe to our kind of Western eyes or even very Bible Belt eyes and ears, this may sound and seem to be pretty tame. And most likely, if you were to read through this passage, the sin that would stick out the most is Noah and his drunkenness. He got drunk and naked. That sticks out to us. Ham just saw it and told some other people that doesn't sound so bad. We have drunkenness versus dishonoring. And our culture tends to be a little bit probably more sensitive to Noah's sin than to Ham's. But to non-Westerners, to those who have honor and shame type cultures, to those who would have originally read this passage, the Israelites dishonoring their parents, dishonoring your father would have been seen very, very differently than the way we see it. It would have been seen as very wicked. And I think rightfully so that the dishonoring of parents is... No big deal to most of us, but to the Scripture it is. And the reality is is that we don't take all sin seriously. We take some sins very seriously. Drunkenness, we know, that one's off. Don't get drunk and naked. I think most of you would have agreed with that as you came in the door. But dishonoring your parents would have seemed like, eh, no big deal. When the Scripture tells us, it's listed in the Ten Commandments, to honor your father and your mother. And this is the first command, Paul says, with a promise. That it may go well with you. You may live long in the land. Romans 1 lists this huge list of sins, of all of which the the religious church crowd would say, Yep, 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 don't do all those things. And I don't, by the way. And then they get to this one that says, And disobeying your parents. We're kind of like, well, let's read past that. That Debauchery sounds bad, but dishonoring your parents doesn't sound so bad. But the reality is that dishonoring his father is a big deal. Because what he is doing is he's not just dishonoring his father, he's dishonoring God. Who made a commandment that said to honor your father and your mother. Who even attached a promise to it. And so the order that he is usurping, that he is rebelling against, isn't just the order of his father, but is the order of his heavenly father, his God. And when we go against that, we're not just rebelling against one another, we're rebelling against the one true and living God. That we notice in our culture, Noah's sin and neglects Ham's is, is a little bit telling of where we are. But there might be more to Ham's sin than just the dishonoring of his father and God than we first would notice. Now that is serious in and of itself, but there might be more going on here than just he saw his father's nakedness and he told his brothers... I mean, why does Noah give such a strong reaction? He curses Ham and his descendants a couple different times in this passage, and that seems pretty strong if all there was is just some dishonoring, right? Well, there's some evidence that, that Ham did a lot more. So this word saw, he saw his father's nakedness, is, is a little bit more than just like he glanced at it. It's a searching look. That is, that it, it's not accidental and it doesn't seem to be harmless. So there could be more to that than what we would first think. The, the word lay uncovered, that when, when Noah got drunk and lay uncovered, it could be reflexive that he uncovered himself, or it very possibly could be passive. In other words, he was exposed. He was uncovered. In verse 24, Noah says that, that Ham did something. It's possible that what Ham did was uncover his nakedness. 
And the problem with this that he lay uncovered and the uncovering of nakedness is that throughout the scripture, especially in the law, it's used to speak of serious sexual offenses. Leviticus 18, that whole chapter, speaks about this over and over again. This uncovering of nakedness is not just seeing the nakedness. There is serious sexual offense attached to that uncovering of nakedness. Now this may hint that Noah did, verse 24, that he did something to his father. Some sort of serious sexual assault. Some even suggest sodomy or castration or rape. Like something very, very serious could have happened. Beyond that, we know Ham's descendants, the Canaanites, are known for their sexual perversion. Leviticus 18 goes into detail about all the sexual perversity of the Canaanites. The land the Israelites that Moses is writing to here in Genesis are about to enter. And he tells them in Leviticus 18 over and over again, don't uncover especially the nakedness of close relatives like the Canaanites whose land you're going into. So there's like this close connection between Ham and the Canaanites. And the Canaanites are uncovering close relatives' nakedness in a sexually perverse way. Further than that, there's this parallel passage in Genesis 19 between Lot and his daughters. Similar story where Lot, his daughters come up with a scheme to get Lot drunk and then they both sleep with him. A sexually perverse scene. And yet, when you read that text, and we will in Genesis 19, the text isn't near as strong as what Noah comes out here. Noah comes out and curses him three different times. That's serious and strong words from the Scripture, when in Genesis 19 it just kind of goes to the next story. So all this is, is speculation, we admit. But it could be that a lot more is going on between Ham and Noah than we would think it could be a lot worse than we thought. But no matter what Ham's specific sin is, sin is clearly present and it is clearly destructive. That is, the flood didn't wipe out sin because the flood didn't wipe out all people. This was a warning to Israelites. Look at what has happened. Look at the Canaanites and how they are behaving. This is where it comes from. Don't follow their way. And it should be a warning to us as well. How destructive and how quickly destructive sin really is. And it should show us that something more is needed. We need something else besides the flood. We need a better Noah. We need more than just this display of a rainbow. We need redemption. We need a Savior. And knowing the depth and destructive nature of our sin once again points us to the greatness of our Savior who took that sin upon Himself not to just give us forgiveness but to cleanse us from sin, to deliver us from the power and the penalty of sin that we might walk in faithfulness before our God. Nothing else and no one else can do that but God. And He has done it for us in Jesus. And so we should have this growing awareness of the depth and destructive power of our sin and a growing awareness of the greatness and the glory of our Savior. Do you have both? Are you growing in both? I think that I could argue pretty convincingly that if you're not growing in one or the other, then you're really not growing at all. To grow in your awareness of the greatness of the Savior is to grow in your awareness of the greatness of your sin. And vice versa. Sin's destructive power is at work. 
These were people that were on the ark that saw so clearly the acts of God, the judgment of God, and yet sin is still at work. And when Noah finds out about Ham, he curses him. Noah's first and only recorded words in the Scriptures. Verse 25, he says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. I mean, over and over again, he's, he's bringing the hammer down on Ham and his descendants, Canaan. And so all three of these sons and their descendants are kind of in view. And this is why he keeps saying Canaan over and over again. He's, he's not just thinking about now, he's also thinking about future generations. And so here's, here's Ham's descendants. We'll see this in the next chapter. But they include the Canaanites who were known for their evil and wickedness in the land. The Egyptians who also once again know for their lack of desire for any sort of knowledge of the one true living God who hold the people of God under their thumb. Philistia, another bitter enemy to the people of God. Assyria, Babylon, these are just kingdoms of people that could care less about the one true living God. Who are always antagonizing the people of God. That these are Israel's bitter enemies and they followed in the line of Ham. And so like the serpent, after the fall, Cain and his offspring are cursed. And here again we see Ham and his offspring are cursed. And so for the Israelites who are receiving this originally in the desert, awaiting their time to go into the promised land, this would have been an important reminder. This would have been helpful information. They're being warned. This is what Ham has done. His descendants are Canaan. They're the Canaanites that you see in front of you. You know their way of life. Don't go that way. But unlike Ham, Shem and Japheth were blessed. So Shem, he's blessed Japheth, he's blessed. And we know that, as once again we continue on in the story, from Shem comes this one who's named Abraham. And from Abraham, his father Abraham, there's many sons. And he is the father of the people of God. And so you have Ham and the Canaanites, enemies, perverse, sinful. And you have Shem, who says that he has this God, and that blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. He has a relationship with the one true living God, and from him comes the faithful line, Abraham, who believed in God, trusted God more than what he could see. And on down, Joseph, and on the more that we'll see in the book of Genesis. And so we have two lines, we have two ways of life, we have two seeds. And in general, their descendants follow in their path. In general, I say, because we know that God is merciful. That is, that the Canaanites followed in the way way of Ham by being sexually perverse. Not as if they just received this and decided, oh, we're going to do this because Ham did. No, they they did it because they wanted to. They followed in the way of Ham. and, And Shem had faithful underneath him. But in general, that's the way it was. But we can think of some of Ham and his descendants that weren't that way. One thinks of Rahab, who followed in the way of Ham until she heard of this God. She turned, trusted in Him. And some of Shem, who were part of the faithful people of God, turned from God. One thinks of Achan. Now he disobeyed God in Joshua. And so the Israelites reading this would have had before them living examples of blessing and curse. 
of this is the way that God has said to go, and this is the way that God has not said to go, and look how it has turned out. From Shem we have Abraham and the faithful, from him we have the Canaanites and the wicked. And so before them, they see this living example of cursing and of blessing. And they knew of the lifestyle of each. And they were to enter into the promised land with this knowledge that the way of the Canaanites, the way of the people of the land, would be a way of death, a way of destruction as it is here in this story. Blessing and curse were before their eyes. And it was meant for a warning and wisdom for them. And the reality is is that we get a similar perspective from this story as well. That is that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10... That these things were written as an example for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. That we would turn from evil and live. And so we have Noah's first and last recorded words. Not probably what you'd want to be known for if you have words written down of cursing and blessing. But they turn out to be very prophetic blessings and curses. And then quickly Noah is moved off scene. And then he gets just this brief summary before he is gone from the scripture until Hebrews. In verse 28 and 29, it says this, that after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now Noah is an interesting character, and he lived an interesting life. He, he lived a long time, 950 years, a long time to be alive. He saw a lot. He saw God's work, God's judgment, God's flood. He saw the, the ark. He was witness and even part of the ark that was, was bobbing up and down as the flood of judgment came over the earth and, and was held by God and God remembered him and moved the waters out. He saw how God was pleased by his worship and sacrifice as he got off the boat. He saw the, the rainbow was reminded of the grace and the goodness of God. And yet Noah was a sinner. Who gets drunk and naked after 600 plus years of life and walking with God. He still sins. And so Noah was was righteous and and sinful. He loved God and he was broken and fallen. And in Hebrews 11, he's commended for his faith. It says this in Hebrews 11.7, that he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So the, the biblical authors commend Noah for his faith. So he was faithful. Not perfect. Faithful, listed alongside Abel and Enoch. And it's interesting that in these first opening chapters of Genesis, from Genesis chapter 4 to Genesis 6, we meet three characters that are listed in Hebrews 11. Abel and Enoch and Noah. Now they all have some, some different ways of their life. They had faith, and so they're listed in Hebrews 11. But they had three different faiths. Abel believed and he was killed. Enoch believed and he was taken up. I choose that one. Noah believed and he died, naturally. Three people, all faithful, three different faiths. That is, we don't know where faith is going to lead and we cannot dictate it. Some are martyred, some are victors. I'm voting that we get taken up. But what all three have in common is that they all three trusted and walked by faith in God. And they walked faithfully to the end that God had planned. Reminds me of Frodo and Lord of the Rings. 
where he laments in the first story, the Fellowship of the Ring, he's lamenting before Gandalf about the wickedness of the time and the power of Sauron and the power of the ring. And he says this, says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Man, don't we identify with that? Like all the stuff that's going on, like, man, I wish I lived at another easier, better time. And the words of Gandalf are so wise. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times, but this is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. We don't get to decide the the times and what it's going to look like to walk by faith in God. But we do get to decide how we are going to do this. If we are going to do it faithfully or if we are going to put God on the back burner and give Him the stiff arm. And the reality is, is that we are called to live not by sight but by faith. Walking faithfully before our God. We don't get to decide how our end will be or what our times will be. But we can walk by faith. And we can trust the God who holds all things in His hands. And from the Scripture we're learning and we're knowing that those hands are good. That they're powerful. That they're trustworthy. And so Noah's account, it ends here. And it ends with some chilling words that we're all too familiar with. And he died. And he died. Noah meets the same fate as Adam. And everyone after Adam. And all of us, that is that He died. Death is the final end of His life. And the seed of the serpent isn't crushed yet. And sin is still very present. And death still reigns. Something greater than a flood was needed. Something greater than Noah was needed. We need redemption. We need to be bought back from our slavery to Satan and sin and death. We need a new Adam who can pass the test in the garden where both Noah and the first Adam fell. Where the Israelites fall. We need one who can take out the power and the penalty of sin. Who doesn't have to sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats which can never fully cover human sin. That's why they had to be repeated over and over again. We need a descendant. We need a seed of the woman who can actually crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Who can actually rule over death. And here we're reminded this. Noah dies that he's not that man. But we need that man to come. And the reality for us all, the truth that we need everyone to hear is that that man has come. And his name was Jesus. Jesus, that He was faithful where others had failed, and that His death atoned for sin and freed sinful, broken sinners of the power and the penalty of sin that they deserved. That He struck the fatal blow to the seed of the serpent that no other seed has been able to deliver to the serpent. And His resurrection shows us that death no longer more has total power over all humanity. That Jesus has struck that fatal blow that He decides now if death reigns or not. And He has decided through His resurrection that He reigns over death. Death does not own Him, and those who are in Christ, death no longer owns us either. And He is in heaven, reigning over all. And one day He will come and finally and fully put out sin and death. 
And we need this man. We can walk by faith in this man. That he might be honored and glorified and one day come and bring us to a place that he's prepared. Now here at Sojourn, we remember this saving act of God in the Lord's Supper. That is, we're reminded in these elements that, that Jesus has come. That he's, His body was broken. That His blood was poured out. That sinners might have forgiveness. Reconciliation to a living God. We're reminded in this meal that He's coming again to finally and fully finish what He started. If you are in Christ... You fully trusted in Him. Not just this head knowledge of Jesus that you agree with, but a heart that's full of trusting in Him as your only hope, as the only one you're clinging to to defeat death, then this meal is for you. And this is a meal of victory. Not yours, but one He won for you that you might share in it. If you are not in Christ, you can't identify with those things and have trust in Christ fully. Stay in your seat and take Christ instead. It is is okay to just stay still during this and to take Christ. If you don't know what that looks like, grab a believer and ask them, what does it look like to believe in Jesus? This meal is a reminder for us. That Jesus, what He's done, what He's doing, and what He will do. So if you're a believer, be reminded and do it in faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Noah, who was faithful and not perfect, who encourages us to, as, as, as people who are trying to be faithful, and yet we know that we are sinful and broken, to continue to walk by faith. But thank You that one came who, was not, who did not stumble, who did not fail where others have fallen. Thank You for Jesus. You provided a way for sinners and the broken and the fallen and the drunks and those who are sexually perverse to be forgiven of their sins and have life eternal with You. God, thank You for the body and the blood. May that body and that blood flow to us and be of sin the double cure. Save us from wrath and make us pure. Father, if those out here today have not received Christ, we pray that You would open their hearts and give them a new one. And pray for those who have believed that you would strengthen their faith because of who you are and because of what have you done. And may you receive all glory. Amen.